Good morning, everybody. You know, it's like, okay, we've covered Adam and Eve, and we've covered, uh, you know, this couple and that couple, and then we went into the New Testament, and we covered uh, married couples, we, have, we, 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 uh, we covered uh, Jesus and various women and his interaction with women, we, we covered, went back to the Old Testament and covered some prophets and prophetesses, and back and forth, I was like, okay, what's left uh, in the series? And by no means am I wrapping it up. I'll leave that to Malcolm. Um, I don't know if we're done or we're not. Uh, but I'm kind of like, in, I ended up right at the end in Revelation. I said, okay, that's what we'll talk about today. Uh, slightly different angle. And uh, men and women in the Bible, a divine harmony. We are going to talk about bride and groom today. And not just kind of, uh, not a specific bride and groom, but the concept of bride and groom in the Bible. Now, Usually, most people love weddings. Some people don't. Who loves a wedding? Who, why do you love weddings? What's so nice about weddings? I think it's a virtue, isn't it? It's a, the coming together. It comes, sometimes it comes so many, I don't know, sad things happen in life. To come to celebrate people coming together, we love each other, we're going to commit to each other. Wow, that's a mouthful. Yeah, there's celebration, there's commitment, there's, there's a joyful occasion, uh, all the happiness, a lot of people coming together, making two people making a commitment to one another. What else do we like about the things? About seeing a bride and a groom together. What is beautiful about it? Any other thoughts? Hope. Hope. Yeah, hope. Hope of uh, a life together and hope of um, you know, maybe something family or whatever else goes with it. Yeah. What else? Yes. Happiness. Happiness, yeah, happiness. It's always like, you know, if you, if you want to see joy and happiness, just go to a wedding. It's uh, um, the happy couple. Mm -hmm. It's also families coming together. Families coming together, yes. You may have not seen each other for years, decades even. Like, uh, oh, wow, you know, but. You know, people will make effort to go to a wedding. That's uh, it's because it's special. Yes. Yes. The party and the food. The party and the food. Yes, the feast. <laughs> yeah, there's the feast and the celebration. It all goes with the celebration. So, um, anybody else? Is there anything you don't like about weddings? Things that you like. You know, you get the odd setting sometimes. Oh, yes, Simon. Say anything we haven't seen for some time. People you don't want to see you in. No, no. Oh, yeah, no, he's not on the positive side. <laughs> he's not on the positive side. <laughs> Seeing people you haven't seen for a while, yeah. You may also see some people like, oh no, hey, yeah, that's awkward. 
<laughs> yes, there is that side of it as well, I guess, yeah. Uh, although that's not what you meant. Um, if, if um, I suppose with the invitations, whether you've been invited or not, and where you're, who you're sitting with. Oh, yeah, sitting seating arrangements. I might say, oh, who are these tables? I'm like, why am I on this table and under that table? And I go, oh, have you been invited? That's a surprise. I guess it's like a status thing, you know. Yeah, status, uh, who gets invited, who, who sits where. But I don't mind about getting people, you know, overdoing it, getting drunk and oh, yeah. side effects of having Oh yeah, people people getting drunk and overdoing it and, and writing drunk notes in the guest book. Oh, okay. I won't mention any names of a certain family member of mine, but I'm glad he's within that. And he's a Christian now. <laughs> the cost. The cost, oh yeah, oh, my goodness, oh the expense of it. I can understand why we were watching a program on a reality show about amazing hotels of the world. Um, and there's this hotel in, in uh, St. Lucia, very exclusive. And they do these exclusive weddings on a beach, on a private beach. And uh, the hotel is, I think the basic room is 2,700 pounds a night. I don't know what the honeymoon suite costs. <laughs> but there was, there was this couple having their wedding there. And it was on the private beach. And it was literally only the couple. There were no guests. It was the person who kind of sealed the marriage and the couple. I was like, yeah, well, at that price, probably. They were like, are we going to waste this money on how many hundred people feeding them? Or, you know what, let's just blow it and go and get married in the most expensive hotel we can find. Yeah, the cost is. Uh, um, some people are cynical about weddings. I had a boss once who. Who, uh, who said, oh, we had a, a social, uh, out of work time social with work people, but wives and families invited as well. So, oh, you can meet my future ex-wife. I'm like, what do you mean your future ex-wife? Like, yeah, you know, I don't know how long it's going to last. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that's very cynical. So a way to talk about that. Yeah, some people are very cynical about weddings. And, uh, you know, they go like, oh, how long is that going to last? It's 50-50 in this world nowadays. That's more or less what the, what the survival rate of, of managers are. But uh, this concept of bride and groom and, uh, and, and getting married is a theme that we find throughout the Bible. And if we go back, I'm not going to redo Malcolm's sermon. I'm just going to write it in the beginning in January. And if you missed it, uh, fantastic. It really lays a very solid foundation. Um, you can go and listen to it online, you'll find it on his website, probably on our YouTube channel and various other places. But um, as we go through this uh, today, as before, you know, what do we learn about? Think about when we look at these scriptures. What do we learn about the bride? What do we learn about the groom? Where we said previously the man, the woman. The bride, the groom, their interaction, and about God, the Father. So the first wedding was in Genesis. In Genesis 2, verse 18, and I'm going to skip a lot of uh, passages today and kind of just focus on the key bits. Genesis 2 verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then in verse 24, That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. I thought about this. This was kind of, in a way, the first bride and groom, the first wedding, although it was a bit like that wedding on the beach. Because if Adam and Eve were the first man and woman, you know, where was the feast? Where was all the guests? You know, where, where, where were all the guests? 
the witnesses, the celebration. It was just the two of them in paradise. And maybe that's all they needed. You know, being created in perfection and uh, being created good. Like everything that God made was good. Um, somebody from Malcolm's sermon about this first wedding, this first bride and groom, they had a purpose and a role. They were jointly responsible for fulfilling this role. Um, to work and rule together. There was no hierarchy. Uh, they, it, was a, it was a partnership that would enable them to work together and harmoniously to serve the creation of God. That was God's original intention with this first bride and group. The plan was to be together and also to, with each other, but also to be together with God in paradise. To have that level of, that close level of intimacy. That was the very first wedding, the first bride and groom. That's how God intended it to be, to be good as he created it. But then, oops, no, no, what happened? What happened with Adam and Eve? Was it good? I said no food. No food? No food? Well, I had to look for an apple, no? Oh, <laughs> there was no food at the wedding feast, so I had to look for an apple, yes. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Uh, which uh, led to, you know, the relationship, you know, it went off track. It went off the rails. Sin came into the world. Sin came into the relationship. And the happy bride and groom started facing some troubles in their relationship. And uh, like, um, you know, most relationships are like that. Most marriages are like that. In the beginning, of course, nobody gets married for the challenges and for the tough times and for the working through difficult issues together and you know, trying to figure out each other and share all of your life together and you know, changing and being confronted with each other's weaknesses, etc., etc. Nobody does it for that reason. They do it for the joy and the, and the companionship and the love they have for each other. But then comes the challenges in the relationship. So Adam and Eve, it went off the rails. And ever since then, couples, marriages were faced with the same challenges. You know, there's the happy day where it may last forever. But then, you know, sometime after that, at some point, you need to start putting some effort in, invest in the relationship to actually improve it and make it grow and let it blossom and mature and bloom and, and, and keep on growing. So that's the physical bride and groom. But after this foundation was established, the whole concept of a wedding actually, we don't find God giving instructions about marriage or wedding or as such in the Bible. Can anybody think of you know, where God tells us how it should be, how a wedding should be? There are some restrictions in the law in Deuteronomy, like you know who you are allowed to marry and who not. Uh, so you know, it's a, you know, you're not allowed to marry close family, you're not allowed to marry a man's not allowed to marry his sister, for example, etc., etc. There are some restrictions, but apart from that, God doesn't give instructions like, oh, you know, you must have a, you must have bridesmaids and groomsmen, and how she must be dressed, and how the ceremony goes, and then you need to make your vows, and, 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 and a ring, and that's all tradition, culture, that kind of got established. But we find that God actually perpetuates this concept of marriage and a bride and a groom in a spiritual message. The bride and the groom that he had with Adam and Eve now moves into a different. And God now becomes the groom of Israel. 
and Israel becomes the bride. And there's some beautiful, you can call it love letters, from God as the, as the groom, as the husband, to Israel, his bride. Like in Hosea 2, uh, from verse 16, I've just picked out the key points here. God basically tells his nation, his people, he says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Verse 18, in that day I will make a covenant for them. I will betroth you, betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. I will show you my love. I will say, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. I mean, if that was a wedding, isn't it beautiful wedding vows? Like a husband making that vow to his, to his future wife uh, and saying, I'll, I'll make a covenant with you. Because that's what a wedding really is. It's a covenant. That commitment that two people make to each other. So I'll betroth you to me forever. This covenant is not just for a time. Oh, I mean, you know, how would that be when someone gets married and says, okay, we're getting married for five years and then we'll review after five years and see how we, where we are and see if we'll extend the contract. <laughs> Well, that's how, how many business contracts are like that. Very few business contracts are in perpetuity. Most business contracts are like, okay, this contract is valid for a year or five years or whatever, or, and then we'll review the, the contract. It's like, no. God says, this, is, this covenant is forever. I will throw it to me forever. And what, what is the characteristics of this? Righteousness, justice, love, compassion, faithfulness. And God even says, I will show my love. I'll say, you are my people. They will say, you are my God. Now what do we learn here about the husband, about the groom? And what do we learn about the bride? What are some thoughts? Who's the, who's the, who's the, who's the groom? Uh, God, yeah, God the Father, the Lord. He's the groom. Who's the bride? Us. Pardon? Israel? Us? Yeah, so, so in this context, this is the Old Testament. So unless you're a Jew, then you're part of that. But if you're not a Jew, then it's really not really us. I mean, as a Gentile, that's not, that wasn't me. That was God and Israel. God the Father, the bride, Israel, uh, the groom, and Israel, the bride. And God has this message of, as a, as a groom, this is kind of like the, the declaration of the groom. The groom is there for righteousness, for justice, for love, compassion. And what is expected of the bride? Only really one thing. To show love. Show love. Yeah. To, be, to be his people. To be his people. To be faithful. The bride is expected to be faithful to the groom. So that's God's kind of marriage vow to his people as well. How did this end? Well, God continually declares his love for Israel. Uh, it is. That was God's intention, a divine harmony, like he intended with Adam and Eve. In Isaiah 62, God says, Indeed, you will be called, My delight is in her. 
and your land will be called married. For the Lord will take delight in you. Verse 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God will rejoice over you. They will be called the holy people. So the set apart, holy is set apart. The holy people, the ones protected by the Lord. You will be called sought after, city not abandoned. The groom declares his love for the bride and declares how the bride is his delight. How, how he's the protector of the bride. Unfortunately, like Adam and Eve, Oops, oh no, what happened? How many marriages have you seen where it started off like that, with a groom rejoicing over the bride, everybody's happy, they make commitments to each other, and sometime later, many years later, everybody's like, oh no, what happened? What went wrong? Oh, I heard they're not together anymore. What happened with uh, Israel and God and Jeremiah? We read in Jeremiah 2, um, in verse 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord says. I have fond memories of you, how devoted you were to me in your early years. I remember how you loved me like a new bride. You followed me through the wilderness. Israel was set apart to the Lord. They were like the first fruits of a harvest to him. All who tried to devour them were punished. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. He was protecting his bride. In verse 20, you gave yourself to other gods. On every high hill and under every green tree, like a prostitute sprawls out before her lovers. Verse 32, my people have forgotten me for more days than can even be counted. My, how good you have become at choosing your, chasing after your lovers. Why, you could even teach prostitutes a thing or two. Ah, things went really off the rails there. Completely off track. What happened? The groom declared his faithful love and the bride, after a while, kind of lost interest, got distracted, started running after other men in this <coughs> metaphor. One of the rules that God gave Israel for marriage is for them not to marry outside Israel. Why would that be? It's like, hey mom, isn't that a bit xenophobic or something? No, it's because, yes. It says in the New Testament, it says you need to equally yoked, and that you've got to share the same ideas or principles, mm -hmm. otherwise the whole thing's going to go in fashion. Yeah, yeah. And that's what, that's what God said. You know, Israelites should marry Israelites because you have the same God. Because if you now marry someone who serves another God, what's going to happen? You know, it's like you don't have the same value system. Things are going to, it's not going to work out. And that's exactly what happened. And spiritually, Israel became unfaithful to God. That's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Luckily, God closed that off and from the beginning promised that there will be a new covenant. There will be a new groom and a new bride. And in John 3, when John the Baptist comes and he starts uh, announcing the coming of Jesus in John 3, John the Baptist says, You yourselves can testify, and I say, I am not the Christ, but rather I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice. So John proclaims Jesus is coming, and he says, But Christ is the new groom. And John says, It's not me, I'm just a friend, I'm just the best man. 
of the groom. There's going to be a new groom and a new bride to replace the old bride, Israel, who was unfaithful. God says, let's try this again. <coughs> in the, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he says, For I am jealous for you. Who's the you? The church. He writes to the church in Corinth. He says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So who's the bride of Christ? We are. We are as a church. And it doesn't matter if you're not a Jew anymore. Jew or Gentile, the church of Christ is the promised bride of Christ the groom. John said, let's try this again. New bride, new groom. John says, I'm just the best man. How did this turn out? Well, it hasn't actually quite happened yet. This wedding, oh, I want to go back, my God, don't worry about that. <laughs> if we think about this bride and this groom, um, what do we learn about the bride? What about the groom? How do we see ourselves in this story? What is expected of the bride? What is expected of the groom? Faithfulness. Faithfulness is expected, yes. What else? What you, uh, if we uh, go to Ephesians, we think about the groom and the sacrifice that the groom makes. Ephesians 5 verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. The groom is Jesus. And the groom, the role of the groom is to show his love, just like God said, I will show my love to the bride. How he declared his love to Israel, he said, I'll show my love to Israel. Jesus said, I will show my love to the bride by sacrificing my life for the bride. Christ loved the church. So we can replace that with the groom loved the bride and gave himself for her. Why? To sanctify her. To present her to himself as glorious. Without any blemish, holy and blameless. What's expected of the bride? To be faithful to the groom. To pursue holiness. To be blameless. Oh dear. The perfect bride is expected. No, marriages go through tough times because there is no perfect groom and there is no perfect bride. But the difference in this relationship and in this marriage is that the, the groom actually perfects the bride. The groom is already perfect. And through his perfection and his sacrifice, he perfects the bride. And because of that, we can look forward to a wedding feast one day. Now this is kind of like, it hasn't quite happened yet. This is not the wedding that has happened yet. This is a wedding that is about to happen. And it's still coming. We can say it's an engagement. As a church, the church is engaged to Christ. Now, engagement in biblical terms 
What happened to, uh, to Joseph and Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus? Um, what was their relationship when she became pregnant with Jesus? Engaged. They were engaged, yes, they were engaged. So when she became pregnant, what did Joseph think about doing? Do you remember? He thought about divorcing her. Like, hey, how do you divorce someone that you're only engaged to? In biblical times, engagement was as sealed and agreed and final as marriage. The marriage ceremony was just kind of a final ceremony, but engagement was a serious thing. It wasn't a try-out period. It's like, oh, let's see how this goes, you know. If it works out, oh, that's all right, you know. We'll, we'll just try someone else and get engaged again. Get engaged again. No, engagement is as good as, you know. And even today, there's a first yes and a second yes. You know, when, someone, when, a, when a man goes and asks, will you be my future wife? There's a yes. You know, and... Some of that only goes one way. Hmm. Wonder about that addition. Um, but then at the wedding, they both, you know, pledge a covenant to each other. But in the, in the biblical culture, that time of engagement is already a, a final commitment. And this wedding is still to come. No one. Ah. So this time there's no oops. <laughs> what happens next? Well, that is next. In Revelation 19, verse uh, 6, we read, Then I heard what sounded like the voice of a vast throng, like the roar of many waters and the loud crashes of thunder. They were shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the all-powerful, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. She was permitted, or given, depending on your translation, she was permitted or given to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen. For the fine linen is the right deeds <coughs> of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write the following, Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. He also said to me, These are the true words of God. So what happens next is a wedding to come. But a wedding that restores the divine harmony that God intended right in the beginning. And where do we fit into this? We, as the Church of Christ, is the bride for this wedding to come. It doesn't mention the other role of Jesus here. He's the Lamb who sacrificed himself for the bride, but he's also the King who's going to sit on his throne. And if Jesus is the king, who's the bride going to be? Now we're getting into all the kind of details of royalty. Apparently there's a queen regnant and a queen consort. Who knows the difference between those two things? Uh, so if the king doesn't have any heirs, then the queen becomes the queen regnant. She co-reigns because if the king passes away, she will become queen. Whereas the queen consort, if the king has uh, heirs, then the queen, queen consort is only queen as long as he's king because if the king dies, then the next in line becomes king and queen. So that's a queen consort. This king is going to live forever. So doesn't need any heirs. This king Jesus who sits on the throne is going to be married to his bride, the church. Which makes the church the queen consort 
of Jesus. And there's going to be a wedding celebration and the bride has made herself ready. Where do we fit into this? How do we make ourselves ready? Now, what's the tradition in uh, modern weddings for the bride? Making herself ready. And what influence does that have on the actual occasion? They put on makeup and nice dresses and nice dresses, makeup, have a hair done, get the bridesmaids to look also mates, nice but not quite as nice as her. Not quite as nice, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, everything prepared, but not quite, uh, not able to shadow the bride. It's a lengthy process. In fact, the bride is expected to be fashionably late. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whether they expect it or not. Uh, but it's all part of the, it's kind of all part of the tradition, you know, as people wait in anticipation of the bride to arrive. In the Bible, it's actually the other way around. That uh, the bride waits for the groom. They have lamps. What? They have lamps. They have lamps. Yes, the bride, for the bride to and the bridesmaids. Yeah, they wait. The they trumpets and stuff. Yeah, they wait for the groom. And the bridesmaids need to be ready. Jesus told the parable of, remember the bridesmaids? Some were ready and some were not. What happened to those who were late? They got walked out. They didn't go to the feast. It's the other way around. The bride needs to make herself ready, but waiting for the groom to, to arrive and to show up. So that's a bit different than we're traditionally used to. And then the bride and the groom traditionally has a her, uh, the groom has his best man, and the bride has a bridesmaid. So, what's the, the main bridesmaid called? The maid of honor. The maid of honor and the, and the best man. Now, in some traditions in the Middle East, the best man and the maid of honor wasn't only there for the wedding and for the preparation, they're actually there for the marriage as well. And they are supposed to be the intermediaries when things are going tough in the marriage. You know, when, when the husband and wife like him, okay, we're stuck here. He would, would speak to the best man, she would speak to the maid of honor. They would go and talk to each other and be intermediaries in resolving marriage disputes. But in this wedding that we're looking forward to as a church, we are actually supposed to be ready, make ourselves ready, because we don't know when the groom is going to arrive. And we can't go and say, oh, well, I don't know, I guess he's late. Shall we go to the shops a bit and uh, you know, maybe come back and see if he's here? <laughs> Shall we go and do this, go and do that, get distracted by this and that? That's what happened to God's bride, Israel. They got distracted by the world. They got distracted by how oh, we're not going to wait for him anymore. They kind of fell out of love. And as a church, we need to be ready for any moment, awaiting the arrival of the group. And the groom, depending on the translation, it says, permitted or given the bride to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen. And that tradition we see today, where the bride wears a beautiful white dress. Now, interesting side note, this fine linen, if we think about linen today, it's like, well, linen is, I don't know, it's kind of more a rough material, is it? It's, it's not generally fine. Um, there's two words for linen in Greek. There's linon, which is where we get the word linen from. And then this is a different word called, called basian or something like that. 
which is a, a very special refined type of linen. It's the same linen that was used to make the curtains in the most holy part of the temple. This linen was so expensive that it was exported from Israel all the way to Egypt to be worn by the Egyptian pharaohs. That's the type of linen that's, uh, that, that he talks about here. So he says the bride will be dressed in this fine linen and it will, will be given to the bride by the groom. So Jesus gives his bride this linen of purity because of his sacrifice that he made. Sacrificing himself for the bride. Giving himself up to purify and wash the bride to present her to himself as glorious. So the bride, us, we can show up with our human imperfections and our shortcomings and know that the groom will dress us in pure white linen. And we don't have to worry about how he's the marriage going to work out because, you know, there's this shortcoming and this sin and that sin. But this time, the divine harmony of God will be restored. And as a church, we should be ready and look forward with eager anticipation, with joy to that day when we will be united with our king, with our group. The queen consort. Consort, we pronounce it. What's a consort? The queen consort. So now what remains, we're going to have a communion soon, and when we have communion, think about the sacrifice that the groom made for us, the bride. But before that, uh, arise, bride of Christ, queen consort of Watford, and let us sing, lost in wonder, to our groom Jesus, who redeemed us. Arise, bride of Christ.